Our scripture lesson today comes with the gospel of the good news. According to St. Luke chapter 9, let's share in God's good word together. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. In case we've forgotten, our mission is not to get people to show up for an hour in a box every Sunday. Amen? Says the people who showed up in the box in the hour on Sunday morning. Thank you. We're glad you're here. But that is not all that we are. Not even close. Uh, one of my mentors, Reggie McNeil, puts it this way. He says, our mission is to join God in his redemptive efforts to save the world. Now, that's worth doing, right? Say that with me. Our mission is to join God in his redemptive efforts to save the world. And that, my friends, takes courage. Courage every day. Courage over and over again. Courage, lifelong courage. If we're going to be about what God is about and bring his redemptive mission and message to the world, that takes courage. Courage. It takes you and me to participate in what God is doing. And so today we are continuing our series on courage, and today we're going to look at courage that shows up every day, something we're going to call fortitude. Um, all the way back uh, to the time of Aristotle and Plato, uh, this was one of the core virtues fortitude, a life of courage. And we're going to talk about what that looks like, how you can do that. Um, but before we get there, if you're new with us, we want to catch you up very quickly of where we've been over the last four weeks. Uh, we've got one more week in this series next week. Uh, it'll be on the love of courage. Uh, if you've missed one, we hope you'll go back online and see those. And to all our folks online, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. I hope you're staying safe and warm, and uh, we're glad that you're here. So week one, we talked about this, that courage is not the absence of fear. It is the right ordering of fear. And we talked about uh, skiing, for example. Uh, it's not brave or courageous to take a double black on your first day of skiing. That's called foolishness, right? And so it needs to be the right ordering of fear. There's things that we ought to be afraid of because they're dangerous or we're not ready for them. But there are other things that are more important than what we're afraid of. Now, Joseph Piper, in his uh, really um, amazing work on the four cardinal virtues, says it like this. He says, to be brave is not the same as to have no fear. Indeed, fortitude actually rules out a certain kind of fearlessness, namely the sort of fearlessness that is based upon a false appraisal and evaluation of reality. And that's why it all starts with wisdom, right? You have to see the world as it is to know what to do. Otherwise, the next step is foolishness, not courage. And as we do this, we have to get clarity on what we're doing. So clarity on what God is asking us to do, right, that empowers courage to rise to the top. Because there's lots of emotions, lots of things going in us, but when we get clear on what our mission is, when we get clear about what God wants us to do, then that courage rises in us. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is super clear about why he came to earth. 
Jesus sits down in the synagogue after being tempted in the wilderness and having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, having already been baptized by the Spirit. He sits, uh, he comes in and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and it says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? Bring good news to the poor. That is the clear mission of Jesus. And so we, as followers of Jesus, this is now our mission. Because if it's not good news to the poor, it's not good news. Right? This is what Jesus says he came to do. And the church can never forget this because this is the core mission of Jesus. That's week one. Week two is this. The conviction of courage enables us to choose what is right over what is comfortable. Will you say that with me? The conviction of courage enables us to choose what is right over what is comfortable. And that is conviction. But if we're not careful, conviction will come and go. Right? It can be an emotional reaction rather than a life of action. And then in week three, we talked about candor, a super important message. If you missed this one, I hope you'll go online and see it because Pastor Brandon did an amazing job, and it's something that our society desperately needs. Candor is simply this. Candor is the ability to be open, honest, direct, or frank in speech and conversation. It's not mean. It's not demeaning. It's not hurtful. It's not rude. It is important that this is the way this is. Uh, if you don't turn here, you're going to hurt yourself or others. Uh, this was not the way this should have been. That was perfect and good and great. Candor, just calling it exactly like it is in love and in grace. Because when we fail at candor, we pass down problems. I see this all the time. Someone will come to visit with me, and they have the same problem that their mom or dad had, that their grandparents had, that maybe even their great-grandparents had, that the problems keep getting passed down because the family system never deals with the core issues of what's going on in the family. And then last week, we talked about hope. All of this takes hope, great hope. Hope is knowing God will show us what to do when we need to do it. And we know this from the Old Testament. When, when God would give the people food, he would give them just enough for the day. He would send manna in the wilderness, just enough for the day. And if they took more than that, it would just rot. It'd go bad. And so this is the thing. God will give you everything you need at the right time. Not before, not too late just at the very right time. And so this week, we're going to talk about how do we live into this um, each and every day. So fortitude is courage that endures over time and through hardship and adversity. So fortitude and courage, they're very similar, but fortitude is really more than a one-time thing. It's really a whole life of courage. Uh, Reverend Tom Berlin, who wrote the book on courage, which we use as a source material for this sermon series, he says it like this. He says, fortitude comes when we draw strength from God rather than our limited reservoir. And so again, we don't, we don't want to make any mistake to say, well, this is about us, or look at me, look at me, I'm so courageous. No, we have courage because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has come to earth, because God chooses to come to earth to bless us, to redeem, to bring good news to the poor. Then we, poor in spirit, we need that. We receive that. And we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that is with us now. And I believe that courage is required more than once when we respond to injustice or share compassion. Uh, there's a real thing called compassion fatigue. Uh, maybe you're experiencing it. If you're a teacher, if you're in healthcare, uh, really, if you're in any sort of helping uh, service these days, you probably are experiencing some compassion fatigue. I learned about this early on in my life. Uh, between my junior and senior year um, in uh, college, I had a fellowship in New York City. And in, in New York, I had an apartment there, 
And you see all kinds of crazy things in New York, don't you? This is up by Central Park, the last uh, trip that we took. I mean, there's all kinds of people. That's the great thing about New York City. If it's in the world, it's in New York City, it seems like. You can see anything. You can have any kind of meal. You, you can go to you know, all different sorts of things from all over the world. And the thing about New York City, like so many places that are major cities, is that you have really some of the most wealthy people in the world, and you have some of the most poor people in the world. And they live side by side. And so the next summer, I moved back to take a job in New York City. And every day on my way to work, I would walk to work. I lived on the Upper East Side and would walk down um, to the subway station and then uh, catch the train over to Midtown and then uh, go to my office there. And every day when I would come down the stairs and I'd take my right, there was a man right here. And he'd always shake his little coffee cup of coins. And he would look up at me and he would say, Got some change, bub? Got some change, bub? Every day. And of course, the the first time I saw him, I was moved with compassion. I was from Fairview, Oklahoma. Never seen that before in my life. And here was a person in need. So what do I do? Well, I give him the change that I have, and I I give him some money. Not expecting what was going to happen that afternoon. When I came back from work, guess who's still there? The same guy with the same coffee cup. Got some change, bub? And I'm like, well, no, I gave it to you this morning, is what I'm thinking. And I go back to my apartment. The next day I come down. Got some change, bub? I give him some change. And I'm, I'm, I'm slow to catch on. I'm not really realizing that this is his life. This is what he does, and this is how he lives. And I don't know when I stopped giving him change. I mean, people that I lived with and worked with are like, don't do that. Don't do that. Just, you know, just encourages them. But yet I still had a heart of compassion. And so um, I'm pretty sure that it was less than a week or two before I stopped giving this man money every day I left and every day I came back. And maybe you have someone like that in your life. I'm, I'm not judging myself. You can judge me about that if you like to. It's not wise. But, I mean, you can. We all have these things. Maybe you have a family member. And they have their own way of asking something of you that at one time was appropriate, but you just don't know if you can do it again and again. Maybe you have a coworker that they ask you for something which was appropriate at the time, but now you don't know. See, there's, there's this thing called compassion fatigue, and it's very real. It's very real, and it's hard to know what to do when the needs of the world well outpace our ability to respond in our reservoir and our limited abilities. And that's why church is so important. That's why the people of God are so important. That we don't do it alone. We do it together in the power of God. And it was, it was the, actually the church that drew me into uh, Marvel Collegiate Church that summer, and I began working in the homeless ministry there. And my eyes were opened to how that could be. I actually came across a man, um, they were all coming in from the rain that night, and one of the things I found about the homelessness is rain is terrible. Because you're soaked, you have no way to keep your clothes dry. And so you're just soaked to the bone. You have no way to dry your clothes. By the way, friends, nobody really just chooses that, like, oh, hey, I think I'm going to, you know, shiver all night because I don't have shelter. I mean, you should know this. And so I, I got really interested, and so I asked the man, I said, 
I said, how, how did you come to do this? I was 21, 22. I didn't know, you know, much social skills then. And, um, and he was like, no, no, it's, it's okay. He said, I was the driver. He said, it was in the Depression, and my friends convinced me. I was about your age, he said. And my friends convinced me to drive the getaway car, and all we had to do, we, we got our girlfriends together, and we were going to rob one bank, one a jewelry store, uh, one time, get the jewels, and, and we're going to live in the Caribbean for the rest of our lives. That was their plan in the 30s. This was 1988. And so, um, basically, I said, well, what happened? Well, he was waiting in the car, and one of his friends, uh, it went sideways on him, and he shot and killed a man. And he got 50 years. And he had just gotten out a couple years earlier. He'd never seen a cell phone, didn't know anything about a computer, had no skills. Imagine if you had been in prison in the 1930s and you got out in the 1980s. I mean, that, that's a different sort of deal. And my heart began to change as I began to understand, well, there's, there's a lot to these stories. There's a lot going on with this deal. Compassion fatigue, it's a, it's a real thing. So here's the other thing, and, and you may already know this, that when we do something courageous, there will be resistance to it. There will, because there are going to be people that don't want you to do that because they don't want to feel bad about not doing it. Right? You, there's, there's a need in your community, and you actually go and help, and you think somebody's going to pat you on the back, and they don't. They're like, what are you doing? Stop that. Stop doing that. That happened to Jesus all the time. But again, this is what Jesus says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Good news. He sent me to release captive and the recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when Jesus speaks this uncomfortable truth, look what happens. He gets trouble. So when we can do candor, it's important that we do candor, but we ought not expect that there's not a price to pay for it. Often there is. And sometimes the price is very high. So if you continue in the story, uh, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. This is Jesus speaking. And none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, you have to understand that Israel is the people of God. They understand themselves to have this exclusive right to the love and power and grace of God, not the Syrians. And Jesus says... No, that's not what happened with the prophet Elisha. He came, and none of the folks in Israel, but it was the Syrian that God helped. And when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage because they were not fans of the Syrians. And they got up, and they drove Jesus out of the town, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl Jesus off the cliff for telling the truth. For telling the truth. Joseph Pieper puts it again like this. He says, in the gift of fortitude... The Holy Spirit pours into the soul a confidence that overcomes all fear. Jesus was able to do the right thing and say the truth. Namely, that he will lead man to eternal life, all people, which is the goal and purpose of all good actions and the final deliverance from every kind of danger. This fortitude, this courage comes from God. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it, it's needed all the time, not just once. Fighting long-standing prejudice and injustice and acting with compassion, it can be exhausting. It really can. So you have to be able to step into it and step out of it 
Go into it with friends, never alone, and to know your peace and what's their peace and when you need to rest and when you need to engage. There's always work to do in the world, friends. So our problem really in the world is this, that compassion fatigue is the real physical, emotional, and psychological impact of helping others. And when you think about what teachers and healthcare workers have been going through the last two years, they have all their normal work, and then they have all the COVID protocols on top of all their normal work, of which they're not compensated for, by the way. In the same way, my sister's an educator. She has all of her normal work, and then she has all the extra work. So she does her normal day work, and then she does all the videos and things that she has to do after that. And so her day, which was already about a 10-hour day, is now about a 14-hour day. No compensation for that, just that's the expectation. Oh, and by the way, she also gets a couple, two, three, four angry phone calls from parents that don't think they're doing enough. That's always really helpful, by the way. It's not. It's ridiculous. And so we have these things where... People are just getting tired. And we as a community of faith, we as a people of God, we as a country ought to think, well, what do you think happens when the nurses and the doctors and the teachers quit? And there's nobody to help you. And there's nobody to teach your kids. Has anybody ever thought about what happens 18 months from now? I mean, we we need to wake up to this compassion deal. It's a real, real deal. And you see, and here's the thing, though, that Jesus has this habit of calling us to do things that require far more than a single courageous act. Can you imagine? uh, You go to your physician or your nurse, and they say, you know, I helped somebody already today. You know, just just come back another day. I've done done my piece. I'll, I'll see you later. No, that's not our expectation. We have to hang in there. And it takes community. It takes courage, encouraging one another. That's where that word comes from, encourage, from the heart the core of us. So in Luke 9, the scripture continues about the life of Jesus. It says, Then Jesus called the twelve, the disciples, together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. I mean, this is real power. And he sends them out, right? He sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Not just to always be with him, but actually send out and do, bring that redemptive work in the world. So discipleship and a life of courage has two parts. One is to come and be with Jesus. But then the second part is to then be sent out by Jesus. And it's this flywheel effect, right? You come in, and you get empowered by Jesus, and then you go out and you do the ministry, and sometimes that empowers you to go back to Jesus because you don't know how to do it yet. Not, not completely. And so it's this, I come to Jesus, I go out with Jesus, I come back to Jesus. That's the way the life of a person of faith works. And so Jesus has sent them out in twos, by the way. And look what the scripture says. It says, on their return, right, when they come back, um, on their return to the apostles, they, they tell Jesus all they had done. And he took with him, and he withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. And when the crowds found out about it, they followed him and the disciples. And Jesus welcomed them, even though he was, you know, dog-tired, and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who were needed to be cured. So they tried to get away, and the crowds found them. And this is what Jesus knew, the disciples knew, and you know, if you're in a helping profession. And that is that the kingdom of God and the needs of the world are both unending. The good news is that the kingdom of God is unending. God's power is immeasurable. But so are the needs of the world. And so the story continues like this in Luke. It says, The day was drawing to a close, and the twelve who have done everything they know to do with thousands of people, they come to Jesus, and and they say, Jesus, come on, man. It's been a long day. 
send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and do what? To lodge and to get something to eat. Because we're out here in the middle of nowhere, Jesus. And what does Jesus say to them? You give them something to eat. Well, isn't that good news? And, and friends, that's what Jesus does. We say, Jesus, you know, why is the world like this? And you know what Jesus says? Give them something to eat. Raise them up. Help them. That, that's why you're here. That's why you're a follower of mine. And then, of course, they say what we say. We don't have enough. Right? The disciples say, we, we don't have anything but five loaves of bread and two fish. And then, they, then they're kind of sarcastic. Unless, of course, you want us to go out and buy the food for all these 5,000 people. Haven't you ever had that conversation with your boss? Like, you, you don't get this. We don't have enough. It's not possible. You're just talking crazy. For there were about 5,000 men. And many scholars say that if there were 5,000 men, that means the women and the children were not counted. So it could have been 10, 15,000 people. A huge crowd. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Make the people sit down in groups of about 50 each. Well, if you have 5,000 people, that's, that's 100 groups of 50. That's a, big, that's a big deal. But here's the thing. When Jesus gets involved, the impossible becomes possible. Will you say that with me? When Jesus gets involved, the impossible becomes possible. So they did exactly what Jesus asked them to do. They did so and made them all sit down and taking the five loaves of two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and he blessed it. He got involved, and he broke them, and he gave them disciples to set before the crowd, and all ate, everybody, and were filled. And what was left, they had leftovers, friends. With God, there's always more than enough. And it was gathered up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, Jesus knows that there is more to do than you can ever do alone, but with him, all things are possible. Amen? That's what the scriptures tell us. With Christ, all things become possible. But it takes courage. It takes fortitude. Well, how do we do this? How do we keep it alive. One of the things I hope that you know about us, and I intend to always have it this way, I, I hope we'll never ever stray from this at all, and that is that we never do ministry alone. Say that with me. Never do ministry alone. Never. I'm 54 now. Been in ministry more than a quarter century. And about every two, three months, there'll be a high profile uh, person, leader, in the faith, and they'll have a very public falling, either a moral failure, a financial failure, something, something terrible, and it gets, it gets the headlines. This is not unfamiliar to you, I would guess. Do you know what I don't see? I don't see those problems coming while they're in Bible study with their friends. I never read about how they were with their small group in ministry when all these bad things happened. You know when this bad stuff happens? When they are what? Alone. Because they're not encouraged. They're broken down. They're sad. And they think, well, I've done enough. This will be okay. God will forgive me. And you have this really weird separation between the life they want to live and the life that brings them down. And so at Acts 2, we, from day one, we have simply said, never do ministry alone. Say it again with me. Never do ministry alone. Don't do it. Just don't do it. And so, look, this is, this is modeled exactly after Jesus. After this, Jesus appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him. How? In pairs, in twos, always in twos, never alone. To every town and place where he himself intended to go. He went up, they went out ahead of him. 
So in Acts 2, we do ministry in twos just as Jesus modeled. And some of you might say, well, what if, what if there's ministry and I'm the only person around? What if there's no one else to help? Well, what does Jesus say about that? Anybody know? It's in the next chapter. He says, well, if you find yourself in that spot, phone a friend. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. You're not me. You don't have an endless reservoir. You can't be in ministry to everything, every time, and every place. That's not yours to do. You're to be in ministry with someone else in a limited way. Come back to me. Be empowered. Debrief what you did. Go back out. Always in twos. Never alone. Jesus is very clear. He says the harvest is plentiful. Yes, there's plenty of ministry to be done, friends. But the laborers are fruit, few. And if that's the case, we need to pray, right, for more laborers. That's what he says. Ask me, Jesus says, to send out laborers into the harvest. And so when, when there's ministry to do and we don't have anybody around us to do it with us, we pray and we watch for the help to come. And we wait. I've also learned that if we don't have two people to do a ministry, it's not our ministry. Because the Lord always affirms and confirms the ministry with the people of faith to God. So if you're the only one that thinks it's a ministry, it's probably not a ministry. Does it make sense to you? It's just something you have on your heart that you want to do. But you've not yet checked it with God or God's people. So we always do ministries in twos. It keeps us safe and keeps the community safe. So we have to understand up front, though, that it may be difficult, this ministry together. Even in twos, it's difficult. It can be dangerous and it can be painful. It, it can. Sometimes it can be joyful and wonderful and awesome and, and blow your mind good. But sometimes it's difficult, dangerous, and painful. So again, in Luke 10, it says this. Jesus says, go on your way, right, in twos. See, I'm sending you out, say this with me, like lambs into the midst of wolves. Does that seem like a good idea to you? Jesus is simply being, having candor. He's telling us, this is what it's like. If you're going to live against the kingdom of darkness and work against the hurt of the world, we are going out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Right? You're not manipulating your way through life. He says, no, whatever house you enter first, say peace to this house, always looking for people of peace. We talked about that last week. Peace and wisdom is what you're looking for. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person, but if not, it'll return to you. So we're always looking for people of peace. Work with people of peace in your life. And this is how you keep fortitude alive. First of all, of course, you pray. And never underestimate the power of prayer. God can do more in answer to prayer than you can do in your whole lifetime. Isn't that true? God can do more in one second in answer to your prayer than you can do your whole life. So pray. One of my favorite um, stories, a true story, is about George Mueller. He lived in the 1800s. In 1832, he moved to Bristol, England. And without letting his wants and needs and desires of his heart to be known to anyone, God had placed on his heart to start an orphanage because there were thousands of, of kids that didn't have parents in England in the 1800s. And so he got on his knees and he prayed to God, God, give me what I need to care for the orphans, and I will serve you, and I will feed them every day. But the first day you don't show up with food, I'm out. He didn't tell anybody this. Do you know what happened next? In his lifetime, God sent food every day for more than 20,000 days. 
every day. He received more than $7 million in his lifetime to build five huge, immense orphanages in Bristol, England that housed more than 2,000 children at one time, all in answer to prayers, without a capital campaign, without a direct mail piece, without a banquet feeding people. He simply got on his knees and prayed, God, I know these kids. I know that you want them fed, and I believe you're asking me to do it, so I will do it. But the first day we come and we sit at these tables, we don't have food, I'm out. And day after day and week after week and year after year, God's children were fed by the power of prayer. I hope you'll look up George Mueller. It is one of the most fascinating stories that I've ever come across in my life. Uh, You can actually see um, renditions of those huge uh, orphanages and the incredible work that God did through the power of prayer. And, of course, this prayer is always um, backed up and confirmed by Scripture, right? So we're going to pray. We're going to read Scripture. And then after we do those things, we're going to be silent. We're going to listen for God. Uh, So George Mueller, he says it like this. He says, when the Spirit, the Word, and the providence of God agree, we may be quite certain that the Lord is leading us, for these three are always in harmony and cannot disagree. The Spirit, the Word, the providence of God. He should know. Just an amazing work of God through his life. So how do we do it? Say these with me. Pray, read scripture, be silent, and receive Holy Communion. Right? And then we can be grateful. We can be kind. We can serve others. All of these things keep our fortitude, keep our courage bubbled up within us. And here's the thing, friends. Bible study is good, and I'm so glad. I'm, I lead Bible study every year. It's important, and we take the Bible seriously. But there are some things that you're just not going to know about Jesus until you do what he asks you to do. That's how you're going to get to know him. We learn who Jesus is by doing the work he has for us to do. Haven't you all ever worked along somebody? You, you've been on a work day or you've come and, and you get to know that person you're working by better than anybody else. It's just a part of the deal. When you work with somebody, when, we, when you work with Christ, you get to know him. And you say, like I've said many times, what is this about Jesus? And he shows you. But, but make no mistake, friends, it's not about the work itself. It's about the relationship with Jesus who calls you into the work and out of the work to rest and then back into the work. Because if it's about the work itself, my friend Jean Marie says it like this. She says, if you're keeping track of how much you're serving others, then you're probably serving something else. Right? If you're keeping track of your service, it's, it's, you're not serving Jesus, you're serving something else. Yourself, pride, manipulation, control, power. There's lots of things there. But it's not Jesus. It's not about the work itself. So how do we keep fortitude life? Same with me. Pray, read scripture, be silent, receive Holy Communion, be grateful, be kind, serve others. Tom Berlin says it like this. We are made for community with others. And our courage seeks the courage of others so that it can be reinforced. This is how we are encouraged. Other people put their courage into us. It takes us all together. So our action step today, friends is I want you to choose the pain that comes with purpose and progress over the pain that comes with regret. Don't believe the lie that your life's never going to have any pain. Every life has pain. You just have to choose which it's going to be. Do you want the pain of purpose or the pain of regret? But we all have pain in some ways. 
So we can choose. You actually get to choose this. You can choose encourage. You can choose with fortitude that you are going to choose the pain of progress. You're going to choose the pain of the purpose of Christ for the redemption of the world, to be a part of God's great redemptive work in the world. That's a life worth living. And then I hope you'll pray with me daily that my faith be bigger than my fear. Will you pray that prayer with me? May my faith be bigger than my fear. And all of God's people say, amen. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.